Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 37 of the book of Isaiah. While you're doing that, I want to give you a couple of words of encouragement. We've been tracking uh, very carefully, daily, usually twice daily, uh, the current state of things as far as the COVID pandemic here in L.A. County. And I, I can tell you that we are really, really close, um, probably Monday or Tuesday, and uh, I'm saying that because of the information that I have. Uh, of being put back into Tier 2. Tier 2 would allow us to go back into the building uh, with our men's, women's, and those types of studies where we can have 100 with social separation. So it is a, it is a big step forward. We are also very close to 3. Now, the reason I want to tell you that is if we make it to 3, there's only really two metrics that the county uses to determine its infections per 100,000 new ones and hospitalization rate, and we are already in three in hospitalization rate, and we need to get the infections per 100,000 down uh, about another percentage point and a half, and we could be in tier three. Tier three would allow us to go back into the sanctuary with half of the permitted occupancy. That means we could have 1,200 people in the sanctuary. So I want to encourage you, pray, 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 pray that people will keep doing the right thing, uh, that we will continue to see the infection rate, the new infection rate, the hospitalization rate go down, uh, and we can get back inside the building for our services before winter comes. If for whatever reason that doesn't happen in the way that we think it is likely to happen, uh, we do have a secondary plan for winter. And I would encourage you to pray for us on that regard. We have a couple of options. Uh, One of them um, would look something a whole lot like Barnum & Bailey's Three Ring Circus. Um, We would be actually purchasing a circus tent 120 feet wide and 250 feet long and creating an outdoor sanctuary that would be weathertight. So uh, you can pray for us for that. As you can imagine, that will not be inexpensive. Uh, It's about $100,000 or so. Um, So we'd rather not spend those funds if we don't have to. So we're going to pray that we get to go back inside the building instead. Amen? So praise the Lord for those little tiny things, okay? you got to look at the bright side. Be a glass half full person, not a half empty person. Amen? Isaiah chapter 37. This is one of those chapters that when you read it and then you reread it and you read it again, you just go, man. What would that have been like? And I want to set the stage for you a little bit. As you travel with us, if you get an opportunity to go to Israel with us on a tour, one of the things that will strike you is the location of the old city, the city of David, Zion's Hill, Mount Moriah, of this place that was known as Jerusalem during biblical times. It was first inhabited by the Canaanite people, the Jebusites, It was inhabited for about maybe 800 years or so uh, prior to the conquering time of Joshua. But it was a little tiny hamlet. Uh, It was there primarily because there's a permanent water supply there, the spring of Gihon, which is the spring that Hezekiah turns into a permanent water supply, which feeds this little tiny city. But to give you an example of how big it is, you could easily fit all of the old city of Jerusalem in, in our parking lot if you just wrapped it around the corner. It's not very big. It's tiny. Furthermore, it sits down in a valley. It is not an actually, actually the hill of Zion, though there is a hill that is Mount Zion, and on that is what is called the Temple Mount or the Temple Platform, that area that was enlarged by the great King Herod, uh, and the, finally Solomon's Temple was built and, and all of those things took place. But there was that. But the city of David was actually below that. It was in the valley. And so this particular passage of Scripture was written about the old city. This walled city 
there was not, didn't have the fortifications of the walls that you see now that were built during the Ottoman Empire, uh, but it had tiny rock walls. And it had a very small population, perhaps no more than 10,000 people in total in the region, and probably not that inside of the city. But surrounding them on the mountaintops, which are on every single side, Jerusalem actually sits, the old city, in a slight valley. There is Mount Scopus. There's the Mount of Olives. There is the southern mountain range as you would head towards Beersheba. And there is the western hill that would have completely surrounded. Those hills, all four of them, have Assyrians on them. They are completely surrounded. They are maybe 10,000. There's probably a quarter of a million Assyrians. They are the most mechanized army on the planet. They've invented the finest war chariots. They are led by the most brutal rulers, and they have conquered over 30 cities that were fortified by the Jewish people. The reason I'm telling you that is there's a reason that the children of Israel were sitting inside of the city of Jerusalem, shaking in their boots, wondering if they were going to die. Maybe you're shaking in your boots tonight. Maybe you have that same feeling. Maybe it's about the racial injustice and the protests, the things that are going on in our nation that just seem to have no solution to them. Maybe for you tonight, it's your financial situation is that army of Assyria to you. Perhaps it's the presidential election that's coming up in a little more than a month, and you're wondering, where, where are we going as a church? What do we do as believers? How do we honor the Lord given what's going on? Maybe it's the pandemic itself and all of the things that we've suffered through for the last six, seven months. The people of the Lord face Assyrians fairly frequently. It's part of our life of faith. Your Assyrian could be cancer. Your Assyrian could be a wayward child. But the same God that we see deliver the children of Israel, what's left of them, just Judah, is able to deliver you, deliver us tonight. Amen? Father, we thank you that that is true. It's always been true. And we come to you tonight and ask that you'd speak to us through your word. We pray that you would bless us as we study. And we thank you for what you're going to do in our hearts as you encourage us through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Interesting that this chapter really is what is known as the great interlude. And it, along with chapter 36 previously and the last two chapters in the great interlude that we'll get to next week, 38 and 39, these chapters provide really the life of the great King Hezekiah. And except for David and Solomon, there is no one else in all of Scripture that has more written about him than Hezekiah. There are 11 chapters devoted to him. Uh, 2 Kings 18 through 20, 2 Chronicles 29 to 32, and here in Isaiah 36 to 39 are all about this great king. And people often ask, well, you know, how come the book of Isaiah really isn't in chronological order? Because these events actually happen uh, well in advance of the timing of the rest of the book uh, of Isaiah. And so there are really two distinct parts, but I think in part... The Lord allows this interlude for us to get our minds focused properly. And I think it works like this. Because God is a God of grace, because God desires to be merciful to his people, 
We have to be in the right mindset in order to receive that grace and receive that mercy. And that mindset is the mindset of understanding that you're a sinner and then repenting and asking for the restorative power of the Lord. That is exactly where the children of Israel, the remnant, Judah, that's trapped inside of the city of Jerusalem with the Assyrian army, that's where they are. They're ready for the grace of God to be poured out on them. They're ready to repent. They're ready to turn. Uh, They're ready to, to confess their sins. And when you read Isaiah's prophecy, it helps you to read along in those passages in Chronicles and in 2 Kings and Chronicles as well. But in 2 Kings 18 and verse 5, it says of Hezekiah that he trusted the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all of the kings of Judah, nor were there any before him. And so we're getting a little insight into who this man was that was the leader at the time of crisis. He was a man that above all trusted God for all of his faults, all of his weaknesses. Second Chronicles 31 verse 21 says this, And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and in all of the law, and in the commandments, to see his God, he did all with his heart, and it prospered. You see, Hezekiah had his eyes on the Lord. I can absolutely identify with where Hezekiah was at. Maybe not in the same way. But I can tell you, this this last number of months, as we've battled this COVID pandemic together, have given me plenty of reasons to get my eyes off of the Lord and on to all kinds of other things. There are so many problems that are going on right now that if one were to stop and just ponder the problems, I'm, I'm not sure that you'd walk away from that endeavor with a sound mind. Things are difficult, they're hard. But I can tell you what sustained Hezekiah is also what's sustaining me right now. God is good. And he will do what he has promised. He has never failed to keep a single promise that he's ever made. He has promised to deliver us from evil. He's promised that if we will walk with him, that he will bless us. He has promised that he will redeem us, that he will keep us. He is a promise-keeping God. And when things are difficult, and when you are surrounded by your enemy, you have to turn to the God who can deliver. You cannot turn to the arm of flesh. It will not sustain you. Your mind won't be able to figure it all out. Your pocketbook won't be able to buy you out. Your home won't be able to protect you from what's coming. If you do not turn to the Lord then you will end up as those who were already captured by the Assyrians. And so this really is a story of what to do when trouble comes. It's the response of this incredibly godly king, Hezekiah. Verse 1 here in chapter 37 of the book of Isaiah. And so it was when Hezekiah the king heard it that he tore his clothes. Heard what? heard the conditions that surrounded him. Got the report from the Rabshakeh that things are grim, it's looking terrible. The Assyrians have basically said, we're going to kill you if you could mount an army. If you remember our last study in this amazing book, they basically said, we'll give you the horses and the chariots. You just have to come up with the people. But they didn't have enough people to even field the army, even though Hezekiah would have been able to say, okay, the Assyrians are going to help us now. It was grim. What do you do when trouble comes? Here's what he does. And I want you to listen and see how many things you can pull out of these next 20 verses uh, that are advice to you in our time of trouble. 
He covered himself with sackcloth. That was a sign of repentance. That, that was what the Jewish people did. When they recognized they had been wrong, they admitted it by wearing the garment of repentance. They said, I'm a mess, and I want everybody to know I'm a mess, and so I'm going to put on sackcloth. Very often they would also put some ashes on their forehead, a sign that everything in their life was burnt away, nothing was left, and they were in this state of mourning over their own parts and whatever had occurred. Notice the second step, and went into the house of the Lord, church, body of Christ, people of Christ, those watching online, those that will listen to this later. My life has been filled with the names of people who have done the exact opposite of what Hezekiah does here. When the tough came, when the problems asserted themselves in their life, they turned away from the church. They, they ran to the world. They went running after a worldly solution, and instead of going into the house of the Lord, they ran away from the Lord. And the tragic consequences of that are many of those people, so far as I know, are no longer walking with Jesus. And the problem didn't get fixed by running to the world. But Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord, and then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priest, and covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And, and so everybody's repenting. Everybody's in that same place. They're all going, look, this is a problem for all of us. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of trouble, of rebuke. And whenever you see the word rebuke, a rebuke always in this context comes from the Lord. In other words, the Lord's saying, look, you guys are a mess. I'm actually acknowledging the fact that you're repenting. The sackcloth, yep, you need to wear that. And blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. In other words, they had a little tiny seed of faith, but there wasn't even enough faith to push it into reality. They had become so used to turning to the flesh that the people inside of the city had very little faith left. In verse 4, and it may be that your Lord God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which our Lord God has heard and therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. How tragic is it when people start believing the words of the world and denying the words of the Lord? Well, maybe, maybe the Rabshakeh is right. Maybe we're all supposed to die. And basically what he's saying here is if we don't get on our knees right now, if we don't go into the house of the Lord and turn back to God, this is a foregone conclusion. And so the servants of King Hezekiah, verse 5, came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master. So he's sending a message back. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard. Anybody been a little crippled with fear over some of the craziness that's going on in our world right now? It's like, man, how's this all going to work out? What's going to happen? It's like craziness right now. But don't be afraid of them, which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. For surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword of his own hand. And then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he departed from Lachesh, and the king heard concerning Tirathkah, the king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war against you. And so when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the king of Assyria. Do you see the spiritual warfare going on in this passage? It's like the enemy is back and forth. Every time God says something through the prophet, 
the Rabshakeh or the king of Assyria says something back to, it's like this constant battle, it's a war. Have any of you experienced that lately? Where it's like one minute, you're just like walking with God, and you're like, praise the Lord, hallelujah, we're going to be delivered, and the next minute I'm going to die of COVID. You know what I'm saying? Or it's like, oh, it's going to be okay, we're going to be all right, no, we're going to elect the wrong president. God's got this. It's going to be great. It's okay, but we're going to have riots tomorrow. That's the world we live in. It's always been the world we live in. The question becomes for the believer, for the child of God, where do you turn? What do you do when trouble comes? Someone who truly understands the power of the Lord always turns to the Lord. He says, I, I don't know how this is going to work out. I'm not sure, God, but I know who you are. And I know what you've promised. You see, what I've been seeing a lot of is the church bickering and fighting within itself. Not so much this church per se, but the church, the big church, big C, the one in the world, all the rest of us all linked together. We're all going, well, join this side or join this side or do this or do that or have this idea or this mindset and I've heard very little of, let's all get together and pray. Amen? Let's seek the face of the Lord. Instead, there's name calling. In, instead, there's TV programs put out there, well, unless you do this, you're not of God. That is not helpful for the kingdom purposes. The church's power is the power of the Spirit. It comes through a relationship with the living God and is not helped by the arm of man. Hezekiah knew that. Don't let your God, he continues, in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem shall not be given to the king of Assyria. Look, You've heard what the kings of Assyria have done in all the lands, utterly destroying them. You shall be, be delivered. You shall be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezpah, the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of Seraphim, Hena and Evah? Basically, he's saying, did you guys read the newspaper? Did you go online and read that article about what was happening right now? You see how disastrous this is? Don't you realize exactly how bad the condition of the country is and how bad the condition uh, of the racial tension is and how bad the presidential election is going? Haven't you looked online and seen exactly why you should throw your hands up in the air and go, we're going to die? It was the same. Different circumstances, but it was the same principle. There was a battle going on, and the people needed to trust in the Lord, not trust in the world. So what do we do when trouble comes? Look, let's start where we should always start. If you want God's help, repent of your part in the problem. You have to turn to the Lord. You have to say, God, you know what? I'm kind of part of the problem here. And whatever my part is, please show me my part. Notice verse 14. And then Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. Notice what he does. Again. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord didn't run away from God. He didn't turn to the flesh. He didn't go to his worldly counselors. He didn't ask somebody for advice. He went straight to the Lord. Any of you fall into that trap to where the last thing you do is talk to God? You make all kinds of plans. You do all kinds of finagling. You come up with your own solutions. You work through all those solutions, you try every last one of them, and then when you finally get down to the end, you realize that it's not going to work, then you pray. Let me remind you of Hezekiah's shortcut. 
and he went into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. That's here. He's saying, here's what I'm faced with. God, only you can help. This is part of a very powerful spirit-led prayer life. Recognizing that he cannot solve this on his own, will not ever solve this on his own, and unless God intervenes, it may not get solved at all. That takes a contrite heart that's broken and humble and acknowledges the Lord and says, God, you alone can solve this. Repents and prays. He flees to church instead of from church. Flees towards godliness, not away from it. How many people in that moment of trial turn away from their Christian friends and towards their friends in the world? Turn away from the Bible and towards some self-help book that you picked up at what may be the last bookstore left in the world, Barnes & Noble. It's like, because you can get everything online now, right? You can get an e-copy of almost any book. You can get the whole Library of Congress downloaded to your cell phone so you can read it. I'm just joking, but it's probably coming. You have to pray. Seek the Lord. You need to trust God with the outcome. Remember our passage? Do not worry about anything. Amen? What you wear, how you'll dress, any of those things, what you'll eat. God knows what you have need of before you do, and he certainly knows when the enemy's trying to surround you and kill you. Don't worry. Don't scheme. Don't run to the world. Trust God. Notice verse 15 through 17. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, is your God big? Listen to Hezekiah's prayer. It's not like, dude, man. You need to identify who you're talking to. If you want to talk to the Lord, here's who he is. The one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God, and you alone, of all of the kingdoms of the earth, you made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, and open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sinasherah, which he has sent to reproach you, God, Can I remind you that all sin is sin against God? Sin is not against you. You may suffer the consequences of someone else's sin, but all sin by its very definition is sin against God. He's the one with the holy and righteous standard. You don't meet that criteria, neither do I. So this blasphemous speech wasn't just to terrorize Hezekiah, it was to thumb one's nose at God. It's like, God, who's your God? In other words, the blasphemy was against God. The curse was against God. It was God's duty. It was God's obligation to stick up for himself. God has to do that. One of the reasons I I get a little bit miffed when people tell me I need to do this and need to to do that or the country's going to be lost in some political battle. I don't believe that. Why don't I believe that? Because I believe the battle belongs to the Lord. He can solve it. Amen? But we have to use godly methods to get godly ends. We can't not use worldly methods to get godly ends. It doesn't work that way. I don't need to harvest your votes to make sure that they're all correct. I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit is capable of getting you to a ballot box so that you can properly cast a vote with the consciousness of Christ. We need to trust God with the outcome. Another thing I saw in this passage, how much time do we waste on baseless accusations? Things that ultimately... If God doesn't have them under control, if he's not going to solve them, they're not getting solved. They're things that you were never called to fix in the first place. I I got into a conversation via email today about the upcoming appointment of the next Supreme Court justice, which, by the way, I pray 
that a godly person is put into that position. That's what we want. We all should want that. Amen? So pray to that end. Pray to that end. But we don't need to sit and, and rip into each other over who's going to you know, appoint what person or what process. That is not accomplishing anything. Take that time rather than trying to figure out all of the baseless accusations against people you don't even know and five people that aren't going to get nominated in the first place and got people that are like, well, if they elect this person, elect that person. Well, you know, he appoints this person, appoints that person. It's like, what do we ah! It's pointless. The enemy causes us to grab hold of all that stuff and go, oh, what are we going to do? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go, God, we want a godly Supreme Court justice. And whoever that is, I am asking you to put all the other applicants at the bottom of the pile and put that one on the top of the pile. Amen? Because all the stuff where we're sitting there chomping on each other, we're biting and devouring and going, well, you know, I think it has to be this person or that person. None of you know. Is there anybody here who has a degree in constitutional law? I didn't think so. They're pretty far apart. They're very fairly rare. I happen to have a friend who has a degree in constitutional law. You know, so, so we have people who their normal job is not constitutional law going, well, you know, if the church doesn't vote for this person, really? It's a waste of time. It is a complete waste of time. If you would take all that time arguing about one person versus another person and spend every bit of that time on your knees in your prayer closet seeking the king of heaven's approval for the right person, I guarantee you the outcome will be better. Take these things to heart because this next 45 days or so, it's going to be nuts. It's going to be crazy. There's going to be so much back and forth and bickering and bantering and bartering and all kinds of crazy things are going to be said and you're going to be forced to sort through all that stuff. Skip the idle chatter. Go straight to the Lord. That's my counsel to you. That's what Hezekiah did. And he was facing a quarter of a million killers that were about to descend on his entire life. Everything that he held dear was about to be pounced on. Sometimes we quote, they're out of Second Chronicles 7.14, and most of us know it, if my people who are called by my name. Do you know that that is actually pertaining to Hezekiah's life? That's actually from Hezekiah's life. If my people who are called by my name will watch more news... Well, that part's not in your, that must be in the JG nearly inspired version. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? If my people are called by my name, will repent of their sin. Notice the path. Humble themselves and pray. Notice what it doesn't say. Humble themselves and write a blog. And seek my face. Seek whose face? An audience with, you know, some local official? No, seek the face of the Lord. And turn from their wickedness. I will hear their prayers. From heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. I think our focus is off. I think part of the problem that we have in our country right now is we are focusing on the wrong things. We need to focus on the solution, not the problem. The solution's in heaven. The solution's the Lord. The problems we've always had in varying degrees. Hezekiah had them, and we've got them today. The question is, who's the solution? What do you do when trouble comes? There are some building blocks of faith in this passage. And if you notice, these things that Hezekiah says are, are a direct result of knowing what the Word of God says. These are all things where he's turning towards what he knows about God. How do we know that? By the Word of God. 
Most of the things I know about God came from the Word of God. Does that make sense to you? So if we're spending more time reading the Word of God, that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome there in Romans chapter 10. He he said, but have they not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah? And he quotes from Isaiah, says, "Who, who has believed our report, says the Lord. Who believes the Lord? Those that believe who the Lord is. Understand who he is. Get who he is. Have had contact with the king, so to speak. Know their Bibles. It is verse 17 that helps us know exactly what that thought is. For then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Amen? So if you want to have faith-infused prayer, if you want to not fret and worry then spend more time in the Word of God and then pray that into existence before the Lord. Allow God to take that Word which is in you and make it an exaltation of the King. It's like, Lord, I know that the best thing we can do is elect godly rulers. Because when we have godly rulers, your word says, the people rejoice. Amen? You see how it works? I'm praying that prayer. I'm not praying about a specific person so much as I am a principle. Lord, I want the very best person. I want a president that will honor you. I I, I want a Supreme Court justice that will honor you because that's what people rejoice over. Not one that matches my little criteria of what I think they ought to be because I read something in an article someplace. What does God's word say? And then pray that into existence. And I'm not talking about positive confession. I'm simply saying when I agree with God, I'm pretty sure he's hearing those prayers and answering them. Amen? I have to pray according to his will. His will be done on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. Amen? So there are three points of encouragement in this part of this passage. Don't be afraid. God's got the Assyrians. He's going to take care of it. And your enemy is actually going to die in his own land. Guess what it takes to see that come to fruition? It's a word that begins with F, something you should all have. When the disciples were about to go to sleep, Jesus prayed for it for them. Faith. It's being people of faith. We need to be people of faith. When threats come, we have to turn immediately to the house of the Lord in faith. Hezekiah's prayer is bathed in faith that God's word is true. It's so saturated in sound biblical theology, it's very similar to the prayer in Acts chapter 4 of the church. It's like, this is who you are, God. Your word says so. And I believe it. And by faith, that's what I'm asking for. I'm asking for the God that I know by faith, because your word says so, to do what you said you were going to do. You're the one that said you would deliver us. You made a promise, God. Not in arrogance. I trust you. I believe you. Notice that Hezekiah absolutely knew there was exactly one true God. Notice how he prays. You see, there's lots of little gods. There's a great book, and if you you happen to love reading... Christian philosophy. Francis Schaeffer in his trilogy, but part of it is the God who is there. So the time has come when we as Christians must really stand up for the God we believe in. And we can't just talk about God anymore because God is so many different things to so many people and they're not all correct. You have to define what God you're praying to. Because I can tell you this, the Hindus have a whole lot of gods, close to 3,000 of them. 
if you talk to most people, if they don't have a strong walk with the Lord, they believe that Allah and Yahweh are the same person. They're not. They may equate, equate Muhammad and Buddha and Jesus all to the same thing. And in fact, Islam actually acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet. A really good one. They actually believe in Abraham and Isaac. They believe that they are people of the book, and so are the Jewish people, people of the book. But it's not the same God. Allah and Yahweh couldn't be further from the same person. One is capricious and offers no method of salvation, by the way. There is no salvation in Islam. If you're martyred, you might possibly get to paradise quicker. But it is as Allah wills. It has nothing to do with you. No promise made. You better be careful like Isaiah is being careful and Hezekiah is being careful to talk about the right God. Who was this God? He says he's eternal. He says he's the God who created heaven and earth. He's being very specific who he is. You know, I have talked to people over the years. I've had people tell me that God is simply an essence. He's basically a cluster of thoughts that applied to the world around us to explain inexplicable things. In other words, maybe he's a causation. I've had people tell me that he is the homogenization of every god that's on the planet. That basically if you were to talk to a Native American person, and they would say, because a vast majority of them believe in a creator, that he's that guy. And he's also Buddha. And he's pretty much every other god of every religion. All rolled into one. And we all just believe a little differently. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God who is the Holy Spirit, and only one Savior. To some people, earth is God. Gaia, the mother earth goddess. And she's really mad right now. To some people, their dog Sparky is a god. To some people, cars, money, fame, fortune are god. To some people, sex is god. In our world, anybody realize that a lot of people think power is god? Many politicians think power is god. I actually met a guy, this is honest truth, who told me that his God was the front doorknob to his house. That's who he worshipped. Every day when he came home, he paid homage to the doorknob. I don't know how he's doing now. Because his God burned down in the slide fire. To some people, God is just a cosmic genie that exists to do our bidding. Hezekiah knew who God was. God alone is able to open his eyes. God alone is able to see our plight. God alone is able to open our ears. And he is the God that created heaven and earth, and there's none like him. Amen? Really important that you're praying to that God and not your doorknob. If you're praying that way, if you're praying to Jehovah, you're praying to Yahweh, you're praying to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great I Am, the one described in your Bible, then there is an expected end. There's an expected end. God's expected reply, verse 21, And then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. Against who? Against Sennacherib. Because you came to me, because you sought me out, because you rightly went where you should go, the virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed at you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Here it comes. Against the Holy One of Israel. In other words, Sennacherib, your time's up. You punched the wrong ticket. You drew the wrong number. You came against the wrong God. And by your servants, you have reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedars and its choicest cypress trees, and I will enter the furthest heights to its fruitful forest, and I have dug and drunk water with the soles of my feet. I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear how long ago I made it from ancient times I formed it? God's reply, I love this. Sinisherb, you, you, you think you're, you're one bad dude, huh? You think you can say these things to me? Did you make that stream? Oh, that's right, you didn't. I did. And now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing of the fortified cities of heaps into ruins. He said, I gave you a little space, gave you a little time, I gave you a job, I gave you a task. I've actually used you, Sennacherib, to deal with my wayward people. And therefore their inhabitants had little power. I'm the one that stripped them of their power. I'm the one that let you win. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field, the green herb, and the grass on the housetops, and the grain blighted before it's grown. I want you to notice this. Next time your enemy thumbs his nose at you but I know where you live I know your dwelling place I love this I know where you live I know you're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me and you could interject says the Lord notice if you have a new King James the me is capitalized because this is God speaking to Sennacherib See, you think you know it all. You think you've got it. You think you're going to win because of your rage against me, because of your tumult, you've come up to my ears, and therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back the way you came. And this shall be a sign to you that you shall eat this year such as grows itself. And the second year what springs from the same, and also the third year sow and reap and plant the vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And a remnant who have escaped the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. In other words, he's saying, oh, you, you think you got it, you think you've won, but I'm going to let you glean from the fields. In the meantime, I'm going to cause those people you have trapped in Jerusalem right now to spring up and come back to life. You think they're going to die, but they're mine, and they're not going to die. They're going to prosper. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there. Now bear in mind, they could have done it from where they sat. Nor come before it with a shield, or build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and there shall not come, they shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake, and for guess whose? 
David's sake. Why is that important? Because Jesus is of the root of the tribe of David. If David's lineage from Judah is not preserved, there is no fulfillment of the Messiah. David has to be spared. God said so. God makes this covenant. And he says, Jerusalem's not going to be taken. The Assyrians are going to be defeated. They're going to depart. And the Jews are not going to starve. I love this. Because it seemed grim. It seemed like it wasn't going to work out. It seemed like everybody was going to die. It seemed like there was a reason to throw their hands up in the air and to give in. Jerusalem was then and still is the city of David. The Jewish flag is the star of David. The throne that Jesus will inhabit one day when he comes back is the throne of David. You see, this whole thing was on God. God's the one that made the promise. He's obligated to keep it. They had every reason to believe that they would be delivered, and yet they existed in fear. Church, don't be that way. God's got this. He has it under control. I can't tell you all the steps he's going to take to meet every need, but I know what his word says. They that trust in him shall not be ashamed. They that rest in him, he shall supply all of their needs according to his riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. You see, I know what his word says. I have been young and I have been old, but I have never seen my people begging bread. That's what his word says. He is my fortress and he is my strength. He is my strong tower and my defense, and I shall not be afraid. That's what his word says. That's why we have to lean on his word. And walk by faith, not by sight. You see, the remnant of these people were still probably sitting there thinking, well, that's all really nice. That's great. Thank you for the kind words. But I want you to see as it finishes up, exactly when God says, thus says the Lord, look what he does. And then, verse 36. It's one of my favorite passages in the book of Isaiah. Because this is so Jesus right here. This is so the Lord. It's like he said, okay, I'm going to make a bunch of promises to you, and then I'm going to fulfill them in such a way that you're going to go, oh my. Are you kidding me? And then the angel of the Lord went out, and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose, that would be the people of Judah in Jerusalem, arose early in the morning, there were corpses, all dead. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home. I'm thinking so. The day before, he's bragging. The day before, he's thumbing his nose at God. The day before, he's sending his emissary to go tell Hezekiah, you better give up or we're going to kill you. And he wakes up in the morning and his whole army is dead. 185,000 of them. And returned home to Nineveh. It's his capital city. And now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrosh, his God, little G. Remember what I said? It's important to worship the right God. Here he is in his house of his God, Nishrach, that his sons, Adramelech and Sharazer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and then Esherhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Anybody else going... 
yes! It's like, way to go, God! Get him! It's like, we, we wander around and we, 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 it's like, well, I don't know. That's your God. Your God's able. He's always been able. He's never not been able. The question is, are we going to call on him? Are we going to cry out to him? Are we going to ask of him? Are we going to believe him? Are we going to take him at his word? Are we going to pray in faith? Are we going to act on that faith? That's the problem. The problem's not on God's side. It's not an unwillingness on his side to, to do what he said he's going to do. He's very willing. He's waiting for us to ask. I think so many times we see unanswered prayer because we never ask them. Oh, we kind of like you know, toss out a couple of words. Like, okay, well, well, you know, whatever, Lord. Don't pray like that. Go, God, your word says. Not because you're trying to rub his nose in his word, but you're saying, your word says it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm standing on it. I believe it. I'm trusting you. You say it. Let's do it. Can you imagine? Prophet of God comes to you and gives you that message. You're admittedly weak. You know, Hezekiah is not exactly at this point in his life going, wow, I'm just feeling all strong and mighty. You know? Isn't it crazy? Think about it. Here he is, he's about, he's looking out and he's going, oh, we're all dead. And then he gets this message. And it's the same guy that said, hey, we'll give you 2,000 horses and chariots. You just need men. It's the same guy. And God's saying, eh, don't listen to him. You see, when your faith is tested, it gives you an opportunity for you to really trust the Lord. If your faith isn't tested, you don't get an opportunity to trust. If your faith isn't tested, you don't get an opportunity to trust. That's why our faith is tested. It refines us. You see, this is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, working out right in front of your eyes. You all know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? And lean not on your own understanding, amen? What was Hezekiah doing? Previously, he was not trusting in the Lord with all of his heart. He was kind of sort of trusting in Egypt and then Ethiopia, and he was leaning on his own understanding. I'll have a political alliance. And then all of a sudden, the light bulb goes on. And he repents. And he goes into the house of the Lord, puts on sackcloth, and says, I'm changing the way I think about this. I'm going to trust in the Lord with all of my heart, and I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. And in all of my ways, what does he do? He acknowledges exactly who God is. And then that God that you believe in and trust in will direct your past. Verse 6, Proverbs 3. And do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. Don't fear the king of Assyria. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. Do your part to not be a part of the problem, but be a part of the solution. And it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. How good is God, church? He's that good. How powerful is God? He's that powerful. How much does he care? He cares that much. And he told you so. So rest in him. Trust in him. Call on him. Worship him. And let's watch him deliver us from the hand of the Assyrian. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray. I want to pray over us and pray for you. If you're watching online, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, it's a simple step of just acknowledging who God is, believing that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and inviting him into your life.
for us who know him, we need to act like we know him. Pray like we know him. Have faith like we know him. And rest in what he's going to do. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this passage. Lord, it, it boosted my strength today. And I pray for those that are watching online and for those that are here tonight. Lord, we came to hear your voice. And Lord, many of us are struggling right now with a lack of faith. And I pray over this congregation, Lord, that you would increase our faith. That you'd cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to know your word and to apply it. And so God, as we think on this passage over the next couple of days and place it into our memory banks and then are able to use it for your glory, we pray that you'd strengthen us to remember that there's no enemy that you can't take down. Lord, there's no thing that's too big for you. And so Lord, as we look to these problems that we faced, we pray that you'd work in our lives, Lord, to accomplish your will and purpose. We ask you to defeat our Assyrians. Lord, we pray that you'd keep us safe and give us godly rulers. Lord, repair the damage done to our bodies through COVID and our finances through the lockdown. Lord, we, we come to you with our minds that are focused on other things and we ask you to free us from worry. Set our feet on the rock. Firm up our foundation in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray these things. God's people all said, Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.